Welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, I will be talking with Dr. Noe Vargas. Dr. Noe Vargas has a doctorate degree in behavioral health from Arizona State University and is the Assistant Dean for the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Grand Canyon University. Dr. Vargas holds an independent Arizona license as a professional counselor. He has been certified by the Green Cross as a field traumatologist. Traumatologist, I can't talk. Is a national certified counselor, holds the Master of Addiction Counselor certification, and has met the Arizona Board educational requirements to be a clinical supervisor. Dr. Vargas specializes in areas of psychological trauma and substance abuse, and he has been trained to work side-by-side with medical doctors integrating behavioral health and medical care. Dr. Vargas has taught undergraduate and graduate level courses at different universities and community colleges and routinely makes professional presentations on topics such as understanding childhood trauma, cultural diversity, effective parenting communication, integrated health, and other behavioral related topics in different settings. So, Dr. Vargas and I are going to talk about a range of topics, including trauma and some of its effects on refugees and immigrants, and also how to uh, help them in counseling setting. So, Dr. Vargas, welcome. Thank you for having me today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, I appreciate you giving me your time today, and I guess a little bit just to start off and break the ice, um, how do we know each other? Uh, we, well, we know each other because you were teaching uh, at Grand Canyon University. Um, I don't remember the timeline, but uh, you were teaching for us for some courses in a master's program for counselors. That's right. I do. Mm-hmm. I do remember that. And then yeah. we met, and you were the basically program chair. Or what do you call it? Director. Uh, well, um, I was a director at that time, and then I got promoted to be an assistant dean now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so we had some fun times there, and. Mm-hmm. So kind of, you know, to start things out in the interview, mm-hmm. usually I ask people kind of to tell me a little bit about their story, any mm-hmm. part that you want to talk about, your personal story mm-hmm. and how that led you to here. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to say, you know, I'm from Mexico originally, so um, just uh, get you the understanding. I'm an immigrant in the United States. I came to the U.S. in 1889. I'm sorry, 1989. Right. I, I was not born in the <laughs> I was not alive in the 1800s, 1989. And so I... I Basically came to the U.S., went to school, went to high school, uh, and then went to community college trying to find out, um, you know, what is it that I want to do in life? You know, who am I? And all those questions that we ask ourselves. And uh, I was actually in accounting, in the accounting field. I went to accounting, and then I didn't get along with numbers so well. Mm-hmm. And so I then said, maybe I want to work with humans, and I switched to psychology. And, um, you know, that led me to be, um, to went to ASU and got an undergrad degree in psychology and then went to um, another university to get my master's in counseling because I really, psychology is great, but I, what I saw at the university was very general theories, didn't really see any application. So then I went to the master's program into counseling because I really wanted to do counseling and then decided to uh, went, go for my doctorate. And at that time, I didn't want to go back to do psychology for seven years. So, oh, okay. so I found a degree that was shorter and still helped me be in the clinical setting, working with the medical doctors, so kind of working the integration between behavioral health and medical uh, health. And then graduated and here I am. I guess. I mean, that was a short yeah. kind of... <laughs> That's excellent. I, I have a few questions about kind of your uh, earlier life. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How old were you when you came 
I was 16. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was 16. There, my accent, I couldn't get rid of my accent, and research shows that apparently after 14 years of age, you if you learn a second language, you can get rid of the accent. That's what I, the research says, and I'm not sure. I guess it's true in my case. <laughs> yeah, I like your accent, so. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. <laughs> um, I was just curious, um, what do you think, I mean, you said you wanted to work with people and not mm-hmm. numbers. Is there anything in your life or something you were thinking about or going through at the time that led you to psychology in particular? I have never actually said this to anyone, so I'm going to oh, do okay. it to you, but it's very interesting. Um, I do believe I was called to be a therapist. Um, I woke up one day. I had never, ever taken a psychology course, read in psychology, and I said I'm going to be a psychologist at that time. I woke up and I said that, and I switched, went and switched my career. Had never taken a psychology course, um, but knew that it was working with people, and and that's how I decided to be a psychologist. Well, I'm not a psychologist, but at that right. time I wanted to be a psychologist. Right. Um, that's how I went into the field. I know maybe there's no substance to people, but I once I started then working into the trauma field, I felt like I was supposed to be there, and so I feel that this is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. That's awesome. Yeah, that's excellent. So you almost had this like kind of physical and mental calling. You just woke up one day and you went and changed your major. And I think it was more of a spiritual kind of, mm-hmm. and that's why I really don't talk to people about this because some people might not necessarily understand. Mm-hmm. And it's, since it's my story, I kind of want to um, keep it for myself. And since I understand it, that's to me, that's all that matters. But yeah. But it's more of a spiritual thing that happened in my understanding because when I started working with trauma victims, I, I, and then started with working with complex trauma victims, I felt like, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, I don't know. It was just yeah. magical to me. Well, there's no topic <laughs> off limits here. So I, I can see that. So there was a spiritual, almost mm-hmm. like a con- you felt when you were working with these victims of mm-hmm. complex trauma through your, one, through your job mm-hmm. that opened you up to something bigger yeah what was that when I started working with children actually then I was already a therapist at that time Mm -hmm. Um, now we're fast forwarding some years Mm -hmm. I was working with children that were unaccompanied minors they were crossing the border on their own and Mm. being uh, trafficked some of them uh, sexually and they were captured by ICE uh, and then put in, in, a, in different programs. And I was working in a program. And I started working with these kids and I realized I did not know how to treat their symptoms. They were having symptoms that I did not necessarily see in kids. They were telling me stories that I was really not prepared to hear. So at that time, I went back to school and got a certificate in trauma because I felt like I needed to be prepared. Kind of saying, you know, I need more tools, mm-hmm. even though I don't like the word tools. but. Sure. Just finding, you know, <laughs> I need to know more as to how to help these kids who are being trafficked, who have horrific uh, stories, really sad, um, you know. And like I said, we had refugee girls um, being uh, trafficked in Texas. They were, you know, being rescued by the FBI. We actually had some of those. So we had all these kids. And so I said, you know, I need to go back to school and went back and got a certificate in trauma and then become... Um, certified by the Green Cross Academy of Traumatology uh, as a field traumatologist. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then I went on and um, my concentration on trauma. So, it sounds like, so when you were 
at that time, when you had first become a therapist, you hadn't really dealt with too much trauma until you started working with these kids. Is that what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I had, I had no understanding really about trauma or even disorders or anything like that when I decided to be a therapist. And so, <clears throat> just to kind of draw a little bit into the story, because I think this is a very important part of the story, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like that... You know, sometimes when we're in our culture, we get a degree to do something, mm-hmm. and we kind of follow the rules and go to the courses, and we mm-hmm. get we know the techniques and the tools, mm-hmm. and then we get thrown into a situation right. where you're working with the most vulnerable people mm-hmm. possible. These are kids without even parents. Yeah, the, I actually worked with, I have a few cases in which they did not know the father or the mother who had brought them to the U.S. They were like 12, 13 they had never met their parents because the parents left them when they were kids with the grandparents or uncles and aunts and you know whatever country that would be and so they were coming to meet them in person yeah that was that's the most and those were very heavy cases because uh the kids would compensate when once they would meet the parents instead of being happy they were just all this you know hypervigilant hyperventilation they were just get into this panic mode, you know, because they were now have met the person that brought them to the world, but they never met them. And uh, all of this time, sometimes they were taking care of their younger brother or younger sister, you know, and now you have this person that you never met that you're going to go and live with. And they were kind of trying to get to, to meet their actual biological parents? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so the biological parent was the one paying for basically the trip to the U.S. and they would pay for the coyote to cross into the border and all of that. And that was, and they were doing that without the proper paperwork and all that? There, there's no, there was, there's, they didn't have any legal paperwork. The parents sometimes don't have any legal status right. in the U.S. so right. there's no way they can do that. So they had to do it that way. But then the kids were detained uh, and they were caught. Eyes, exactly. Right. And so and they were released to them, but then they had to continue the immigration process right. after that. I mm-hmm. see. And the refugees are different because the unaccompanied minors are called what's called they are called immigrants. Right. The refugees are different because they already come with uh, documentation. They come with immigration papers, but they're still separated. They will bring the children first, and they will keep the children for four or six years here until the parents can come to the U.S. because there were different refugees, the minor refugees and the adult refugees. Oh my goodness, and they'd separate them? They separate them, yeah, they don't come as a family. Wow, Mm -hmm. okay, there's so many topics to delve in here because sometimes, you know, I've studied a lot of these things and I actually have worked with both refugees and immigrants Mm -hmm. in one of my jobs in Phoenix. I worked with refugees um, coming from war-torn areas in Africa Mm -hmm. And then also immigrants from Mexico mm-hmm. and other countries as well, mm-hmm. I believe, some Eastern European countries. Mm-hmm. And everyone's got a bit of a different story mm-hmm. because, and the refugees normally, I mean, you know, you're a bit, bit more of an expert about this, but the, mm-hmm. the refugees usually worked, uh, the United States has decided to take a certain number of people okay. in that are from an afflicted uh persecuted possibly population is this am i on the right correct you're correct and 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 so maybe from a war or Mm -hmm. there somebody's coming after their Mm -hmm. uh, sect of people Mm -hmm. their tribe so to speak or their religion Mm -hmm. um and then we've decided okay they they're going to be basically die if we don't bring them in Mm -hmm. or something really bad is going to happen they're going to become 
um, put into sex trafficking or become child soldiers or mm -hmm. something. So we take them back into the U.S. and say we want them to be part of our country, mm -hmm. and we take a certain number of the refugees, and we, we do all the paperwork for them, or or maybe the Red Cross or somebody. Um, actually, you're right. It's just uh, the thing that we need to think about is the timeline here. Right. Because they, let's say, flee their country of uh -huh. origin. So let's say they come from... Um, we used to I, we used to work with a lot of people from uh, um, Nepal. Oh, they, they have a refugee camp in Nepal. They were uh, Burmese. They were Burmese. Okay. Worked, I worked with a lot of them actually, as part of my case law at that time. So they were going to a, a refugee camp first. That's the first step. Right. They had to be certified by the UN. Oh, by the United, UN. Okay. Yeah, the United Nations, right? So they go in there. So then the United Nations goes in and kind of puts them in the, this list, whatever the country is gonna take them, right? But for that, it can take years. Yes. So they have all this second life, per se, before coming to the U.S. or to any other country in the world, that they're living in this concentration camp. A lot of things happen there. Yeah. A lot of things can happen there, right? And so sometimes then they'll say, okay, we have space for the ch children. So they bring the children first and leave the parents there. And that, yeah, and they put them in foster homes here. And that's the ones I used to work with. The children. The children, their children. And they're waiting for their parents, for the to, get parents to get here. Yeah, from to, the refugee camp. Yeah, because there's only a number, like you said, there's only a number of, a certain number of people they can bring every year, the U.S. or any other country. Right. Okay. Now, the U.S. Or, uh, historically has taken more than any other country in the world. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I remember I worked uh, with um, uh, this particular boy from Somalia who became uh, an adult before he even saw his parents again. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he was in the foster parent system here. And okay, that is it's sponsored by the federal government. Right. And so, um, so yeah, that happens sometimes they come separately. And they, yeah, they come already with their papers. However, mm -hmm. uh, the the adults um, have to pay for the their plane ticket after they've been in the U.S. They have about six months to pay the ticket back, the plane ticket back to the government. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, then they put them in collections and all of that. They, they give them the American, <laughs> they teach them the American way. The welcome, right? Yeah, the welcome. <laughs> but yeah, they come already with papers and they, they there's organizations here that help them, it's called resettlement. Okay, yeah. They help them through the process, they go through this program and they, you know, they, when they get here, they give them an apartment, um, they give them some uh, social services. And I, it's been a while since I actually worked with the actual um, program structure program now i kind of work on my own with the more immigrants now than the refugees but um in private practice but when i actually was in the program it's very structured as to the timelines too right yeah but uh, the concentration camp period is, 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 it is it actually called the concentration camp or a refugee camp i'm sorry did i say concentration camp <laughs> yeah i'm sorry it's a refugee camp thank you so much right. i've been saying that all this time uh, it's, <laughs> okay. it's okay <laughs> I don't sure mean, I, I didn't yeah i didn't mean that that's okay <laughs> So, but but the time, but so just to, I want to I want to make also talk about the post traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. and different depression and anxiety mm -hmm. that these mm -hmm. both adults and children go through. But I was just reading the other day. This is an article um, on the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs website mm -hmm. and the National Center for Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, and they were talking about refugees. And this is just this is years ago, but. In 2002, the U.S. Committee for Refugees estimated there was 14.9 million refugees and 22 million internationally displaced persons in the world. Um, and basically, 
this escalating international crisis has developed over the past 60 years as organized political violence has increasingly targeted civilian populations. Refugees are men, women, and children from virtually every income level and living arrangement. As refugees, they have left behind their livelihood, their communities, and most of all of their possessions. Although a large number of the individuals do adjust well, many suffer psychological distress as a result of their exposure to traumatic events and the hardships associated with life as a refugee. And it was talking about some of the, uh, bef even before they flee to the refugee camp and maybe get, um, mm -hmm. you know, some help by the UN or another organization, um, they may be witnessing fighting, destruction, uh, observe violent acts perpetrated against loved ones, be subjected or witness sexual violence. Um, uh, they were, some of the studies shown that a lot of them had witnessed torture or been tortured or been isolated or seen a family member get killed or a family member just disappear. Um, a lot of them had been, this is, these, I'm not reading all the percentages and statistics, mm -hmm. but like it said, 67% had been deprived of food and water. Mm -hmm. Um, 60 something percent had been near a combat situation. 62% reported being close to death, which, um, in the clinical diagnosis of mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, I'm just hearing a mm -hmm. lot of the, of yeah. the triggers that could have caused someone to have it. Um, and then post-flight, they're in these camps for a long time, these refugee camps, and then before they get resettled, or if they get resettled, having left their homes, refugees are often forced to confront isolation, hostility, violence, and racism in their new locations. Um, individuals who are resettled in refugee camps often face living situations that are at times overcrowded, rife with the threat of infectious disease and primitive in design. Additional chronic stressors that refugees must deal with include socioeconomic disadvantages, poor physical health, and the collapse of social support. So, and then it talked about the prevalence of PTSD, and it just varies on where they were coming from and what happened in their story, because mm -hmm. it was saying the sample showed prevalence rates from anywhere from 4 to 86% for PTSD and 5 to 31% for depression. And of course, we know culturally, sometimes people don't identify depression mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in uh, different cultures. It might not be culturally okay to do that. All right. Um, Anyway, this is a long story, so okay. people, I will post that in the show notes, or a long article, but that was just the refugees, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the trauma there, and then talk a little bit more about your experience with the immigrant children mm -hmm. that brought you to this field, so. Yeah, you you really um, read uh, diff so many components, uh, the, or uh, environmental issues that can cause trauma, for someone, and yeah, they're talking about PTSD, but we look at um, childhood trauma, which now we have a PTSD diagnosis for children, the DSM-5. However, um, you think about a mother who may get pregnant in the refugee camp, who had experienced trauma prior to being pregnant or throughout her life, and you think about the trauma that is gonna be passed on to the child too, right? So the child now is born in this refugee camp, and then now they have to to another country where now the mother has all this trauma that has been dealing with, that's been dealing with for a while, and now it comes to the U.S. but or to any other country in the world. But the trauma that mother is carrying, you know, now can be passed on to the child because the mother is not being regulated. You know, she's she's experiencing all this trauma. So that's one trauma that we don't talk about much because yes, I know that when we when we talk about trauma, we always go to PTSD right. because that's what's been studied a lot, especially for the from the veterans affair. They're going right. to study that a lot, right? And yeah, I do believe in PTSD. Of course, I think there's a lot of people that have PTSD, but I wanna 
mentioned that there's other traumas out there that sometimes we don't necessarily pay attention because they're not in the DSM-5 and we don't um, study them, you know. There's the developmental trauma. So for me, the way I define trauma, so let me give you my definition first so maybe you can understand where I'm coming from. To me, trauma is anything that disrupts the normal development of any human being, okay? And disruption can be emotional, psychological, physical. And of course, it has to have some type of hardship at those levels, you know, right. uh, because there's different disruptions. And I know we don't like to use the word normal in sure. psychology for sure. those people who hate the word. Um, I do believe that there's a place in the field because we do have ab abnormal. So how can we have abnormal when we have normal? You know, we have right. to have both. We have abnormal exactly. psychology courses. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so how do we have then? What is, the no what is abnormal? What have we been abnormal for from the from the baseline, from the mainstream? So that's called normality, even though we... And I, I know as a diverse person that we can go into what's normal for you, it's not normal for me, but there's certain normality in, in development. So we're, and we're talking about, real quick, just mm -hmm. I'm going to throw in something, possibly mm -hmm. just kind of human needs that are global, mm -hmm. such mm -hmm. as Maslow's hierarchy, you know, food, yeah. shelter, water, mm -hmm. safety, mm -hmm. and some, some stability. I mean, we're humans. So there's not going to be always exactly. stability. That's sort of a myth. Mm -hmm. But having a little bit of a safe place to go. Exactly. And um, and then we could go higher and higher and higher. And, of course, when we were talking about what's normal for me is yeah. not normal for you. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about cultural and high le higher level and, mm -hmm. you know, social things but on the base level mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people that are not being having normal development mm -hmm. or ex what we mean is that they ha they don't have access to mm -hmm. basic human uh, needs yeah being like, met. like safety right you know reassurance nurture you know the nurture versus nature there shouldn't be adversity they should be both both go together nurture and nature go together right not versus you know right in my opinion because you need that nurturing, you need the love, you need that caring as a child. You know, your brain is developing, you're developing neural pathways. You want to develop those neural pathways. So when we talk about, go back to the trauma issue, we think, of, we think about displacement. Displacement as a traumatic event. And that's actually being captured now in literature, where they see displacement as a traumatic event. Okay. So children and adults go through this process, but remember who's supposed to be regulating and giving safety to the child is the adult, mm -hmm. is the parent. But how can a parent do that when they are having all these traumatic uh, events happening to them and they're reacting to them? And so let's talk a little bit about their reaction. You said that, that the mother needs to be regulated. We're talking about emotional regulation and we're talking about physical and we're talking about the fight, flight, freeze response and hypervigilance and a lot of things that maybe they don't have, quote, full PTSD according to the Diagnostic yeah. mm -hmm. and Statistical Manual of mm -hmm. Psychiatric Disorders. But what we're talking about is a spectrum of trauma. We're talking about mm -hmm. um, these things happen and everyone's a little bit unique, but if mm -hmm. they're you know, a child's developing mm -hmm. the neural pathways, but the mother mm -hmm. or the father or whoever may be completely distressed and behaving mm -hmm. in ways that are um, erratic, maybe, mood swings. And, um, and, and, and or different type of, yeah, the, you know, where the brain has now become so hypervigilant because I'm having now, this event has triggered my brain or has shifted my brain where now I'm looking at the safety, you know, am I safe, am I not safe, you know, when am I supposed to be 
looking for another event. So they're almost looking for signs of, um, am I going to be hurt? And this is an easy example just for our listeners mm -hmm. would be kind of an American soldier that comes back from a war mm -hmm. and who's been in a combat zone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you know anybody, um, oftentimes you know, ask them where they want to sit in a room. They're mm -hmm. going to sit facing the door mm -hmm. and they're going to, they're going to, or in the restaurant, they're going to sit in the back mm -hmm. of the corner so they can observe the place for, for threats. Exactly. They're hyper vigilant and they're right. always looking for that. So we're looking at here what we call a, uh, acute trauma type or type one trauma, you know, like very one event. Right. You know, that this mother, for instance, I'm using a mother as an example in the displacement process in the refugee camp, you know, the experiences they may have. And now they have more trauma coming up to in their in their lives. And now we have moved from acute to chronic, you know. Right. And that's that's where we're going to see more of the, I think, more of the symptoms for PTSD in the more of the traumatic and that chronic so, so they've had multiple, multiple traumas and not time to recover or treatment or exactly. any help. And so yeah, then they're supposed one. to be helping the children mm -hmm. and the children are, mm -hmm. you know, wanting their mother to be there mm -hmm. and then their mother is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is this goes into attachment theory, which we don't have time for. That's a whole yeah. other episode. But yes, we are hearing, you know, the child comes to the mom mm -hmm. and they're crying. And a lot of the times if the child mm -hmm. is sincerely crying, a mother mm -hmm. will comfort the child mm -hmm. at, versus a child who's, you know, acting out, manipulating mm -hmm. the mom mm -hmm. for some sort of treat that's different. Mm -hmm. But if the child is coming genuinely upset and scared mm -hmm. for safety or something mm -hmm. happened, the mother will comfort. But if the mother is had trauma they may react mm -hmm. um randomly or, mm -hmm. or 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 ignore it ignore it or cold mm -hmm. or or confused or angry mm -hmm. um because mm -hmm. they are being mm -hmm. they are not able to regulate their emotions mm -hmm. and so then this is passed on to the children mm -hmm. and this puts them if we've of course the aces study mm -hmm. the adverse yeah. child experiences study for our listeners if you want to look that up um shows that the well, they did a study for years, but if you've had big T trauma or multiple traumas, mm -hmm. you're more likely to have, you know, childhood. some type of, um, yeah, you're more likely to mm -hmm. uh, be prone to addiction, uh -huh. early pregnancy, depression, a depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. um, suicide, mm -hmm. um, using drugs and alcohol, right. uh, abusing them and these sort of things based on that. So we're now having all these children mm -hmm. who have, are the second generation of refugees mm -hmm. who are having difficulties just mm -hmm. being a person. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, when you think about displacement, uh, I gotta go back to that because this is big in this in this community. Right. Um, you think about displacement, you, you move from displacement, see, you were displaced, you were torn apart, you were pushed out. It wasn't your choice to move. It wasn't necessarily your choice. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a forced choice, if you wanna put it that way. Right. You were forced to choose that, you know? Right. And so it's either die or, well, I don't want to go more into that detail, but basically then you're going to this refugee camp, you're trying to adapt to that environment, which like I said, if you study the area, you see that a lot of people spend years in there. Right. You know, there's children that are born there. There's the life continues on in that, in the refugee camp. Okay. And then you are moved to a different country and they try to do the best they can. They try to put you in a country or at least in a state in which the weather is similar to you, where you come from. Okay. Because, uh, they try to do some of that stuff, but still it's not the same. You're in a different country where the culture is so different. So now you have to adapt to a different culture. You have to, because you have to come here and you cannot live the life that you were living. You have to get to work. You know, sure. if you come to the ES, everybody has to work. Right. 
you know, you had to learn a new language. You had to just adapt to this culture. So you have so many processes that are happening that emotionally are really affecting you, right? Because there's frustration, there's anger, there's depression. Depression is big in the area, of course. And of course, there's uh, the trauma uh, symptoms that need to be addressed. Uh, yes, mm -hmm. and so uh, I can even see this. I want to contrast this. I want to talk mm -hmm. about your work and, and maybe how to help refugees mm -hmm. uh, and immigrants, but I just mm -hmm. it just popped into my brain. Um, a good example of this is, so you emigrated, and mm -hmm. we can talk about that at some mm -hmm. point, but um, I realized, you know, I'm the grandson of an immigrant. Mm -hmm. My grandfather came over from Germany when he was five, okay. and between World War One and World War Two, mm -hmm. because his parents saw the rise of Hitler, got scared, came over, mm -hmm. and got a coal mining job in, outside of Chicago, and, and even them, who were welcomed, they were welcomed. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. plaque, and they have a, their name on Ellis Island. My great-grandfather's mm -hmm. name is on that monument. Oh, wow. Um, that his family came over through Ellis Island, and they were welcomed with open arms, like, oh, good, we, we can get you know, more people to help us in the coal mines and whatever, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, that family, even with all of that welcoming, went through tremendous strife. Should we go back to Germany? Oh, no, wait, now Hitler's ruining the place. We mm -hmm. can't go back. Um, what about all our relatives? We'll never see them again. Um, you know, now my grandfather got made fun of for not knowing English mm -hmm. when he went to kindergarten, so he had to learn English on his uh, recess. Mm -hmm. He had to stay in the class and learn English. And of course, with him, he adjusted well because he was young and mm -hmm. resilient. And so, and since his family was poor, he had to go learn piano to earn money playing piano at the church. And he had to learn all these skills with his brother to make extra money mm -hmm. working in a factory when he was young and go learn how to catch fish and, um, you know, go hunting to get food mm -hmm. for the family. Um, and so they ended up getting a lot of skills that helped them in life, later life become successful in the United mm -hmm. States in our, well, quote, unquote, successful mm -hmm. in the United States with business and all of that. Um, but even that situation, which was a definite choice, mm -hmm. um, they were pretty much welcome to the community. They didn't have the greatest jobs, but even in that there was psychological mm -hmm. trauma. So that was a good situation. So let's mm -hmm. go to somebody who's displaced, disrupted. Mm -hmm you've lost your sense of home, mm -hmm. you've lost your sense of safety, uh, the predictability of the world. It's hard to function mm -hmm. as a person when you don't even, you're, you're, out of your, uh, you're out of your chosen place to live and mm -hmm. your culture, and then, you're, and then you're trying to adjust in a new culture, mm -hmm. plus you probably have now acquired significant psychological distress, which depending on the situation, some people adjust well mm -hmm. and are able to adapt well, and sure. some people are severely um, crippled mm -hmm. by all sorts of psychological and physical mm -hmm. uh, traumas, which could, which is where, I guess, the work mm -hmm. comes in to help these people right. uh, on every level, not just with counseling mm -hmm. and psychology, which was what we do, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, what can, if you live in a community with refugees, mm -hmm. how can you, you know, welcome them to your community that's that's therapeutic mm -hmm. welcoming them into your the places that you go shop or the places mm -hmm. that you go recreate or you you know mm -hmm. have spiritual connections mm -hmm. well there's um wow you touched so many topics you touched the topic <laughs> of historical trauma which right. is another trauma that we don't necessarily pay attention to and i'm just going to talk a little bit about that and then i go to your question because 
the historical trauma is really the trauma that has happened his, you know that is historical so for instance in your case you said that most mostly they adapted okay they had some you know some issues but but mostly they were able to adapt and they were resilient because they were really young you said and yeah you know but i mean his parents mm -hmm. didn't they never mm -hmm. learned they, their english was poor and yeah. they remained poor yeah. because of that yeah but anyway but you know you have uh let's say native americans you know i actually uh, did a presentation uh one of the native americans um uh, reservations and um, I was talking about historical trauma and this and for them displacement with their culture was still big um, because the historical trauma is really that trauma that you experience as a child or as a grandchild of your grandparents trauma for instance you know the some in the Jewish community there's mm -hmm. a lot of research shows that children and grandchildren of Someone who suffered or who has, you know, close nets with uh, what happened in, um, mm -hmm. you know, when they were um, mistreated, mm -hmm. uh, they they actually uh, pass on to the next generation, second, third generation. Why? Because it's a historical trauma. It's you learn by hearing your parents talking about all of this horrible experience that they had experienced or their uncles, somebody. So you actually experience the same trauma or the same symptoms that they did where you had never ever been in that situation well, it's almost like right. vicarious trauma because it's being taught you it, yeah you it's, could, it's part of your environment mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and safety is not part of your environment and exactly so danger is exactly yeah. so it's called historical because it, it's history for other people <laughs> but right. you experience it right it's not right. the same as traumagenic families that's different okay the traumagenic right. families is different than historical trauma but Historical drama is another area in which there's a lot of research happening because how can you as a grandchild experience what your grandparents experienced, you know, when you're over here a second gen third generation, one, two, no, first, second generation after them. Yeah, my dad's right? first, I'm second. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So that's just one aspect that I want to mention. That's why I want, I, we talk about PTSD and we haven't really talked about it much, but yeah. I, I just want to bring to everyone's awareness that there's for trauma, there's more than PTSD. There's just so much out there, and so let's go to what your question about helping this, helping them, helping the refugees, yeah. and how yeah. do we help them? Mm -hmm. Well, part of what we need to understand is that uh, when they're here and they try to, they try to get together in their own communities. Why? Because they wanna experience their own culture. They wanna practice their own customs, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's important to them because it gives them some of the um, safety and security within their community, which they might not experience when, once they're outside the community. So what you can do is one of the things is learn more about them, right? learn more about their religion, learn more about um, their culture, you know, mm -hmm. uh, their customs, um, and be welcoming in your offices, you know, like for instance, be neutral in your office, don't have any signs of really any type of religion, regardless of your religion. Right. You know? That way, when you, especially if you're working with this population, especially, yes. you know, because you have people who are Muslims, you have people who are Christians, you have some people who are very Orthodox Catholics. Um, so you have different people that you're working with. And within a country, you know, they're supposed to be more Muslims, but there might be some Catholics and Christians within them, or some Buddhists. Sure, and there's different know? divisions of each exactly. of those different sects. So you walk, you know, your, your office needs to be welcoming. 
learn about, like I said, their country, their culture, their religion, the type of food they eat, what they don't eat, uh, what is it that they respect, what they value, you know? Why? Because you have awareness, not because you're going to become an expert, you're going to be start dressing like they do or anything no. like that, but because <laughs> right. you have awareness, right, right. of who they are. And uh, if you go into their homes, you know, that's, if you do a home visit, uh, knowing at the meal times, you know, why, why do they, you know, do they have worship time? Uh, and don't disrupt those moments for them because you are an outsider. Even though you are working with them and you're learning, you're still an outsider for their mm -hmm. culture, you know? And so um, you want to know more about them uh, and understand what are the, some of the symptoms that they may experience through their displacement. You know, how were they, how did they get to the U.S., you know? Were they refugees? Were they immigrants? You know, um, what happened in the journey? You know, um, I worked with this kid um, who was a Muslim kid who witnessed his father's um, being his father being killed by a bomb. Mm. So he witnessed that, you know, and so you know how to deal with that situation, you know. Um, and he was placed with a family that were a very loving family, but he just couldn't adapt. He just couldn't adjust. He was in pain. And of course, as a guy, you know, he was a teenager. He didn't show emotion, you know. Mm. So I tried to use his faith to help him go through that. You know, I tried to use that to guide him. So I did have to read a little bit about his faith at that time. I remember in particular, that particular when I had to do research. You know, and I tried to engage him into something that he valued was, was his faith. But he had questions about his faith, too. Right. Right? So I said, well, do you have someone in your community that is like a leader in, the, in your religion that can, you can talk to about those issues? You know, and try to help him through that process. It was really challenging, but because I didn't want to get, even though I read about his religion, I was not an expert in that. That's not my, that was not my area, so I connected him to someone that... He could talk about that, and I kept doing the psychological aspect. But you don't want to. You want to be careful when crossing boundaries into your roles. You know, you don't. Yes. You, you don't want to become a case manager. Uh, right. You know, uh, or go above your scope of practice. Yeah, yeah I was about to say it sounded like you mm -hmm. had connected him with a mentor because if he mm -hmm. has a mentor within mm -hmm. his culture, mm -hmm. he can take his pain of his father mm -hmm. being killed by a mm -hmm. bomb, and he can. Mm -hmm. He is a. There's a. There's not. You know. Mm -hmm total choice but there is some mm -hmm. there is some direction there mm -hmm. does he want to take that narrative mm -hmm. and and become uh, make us you know the story mm -hmm. that is positive and makes mm -hmm. sense within his religion and his mm -hmm. culture and his mm -hmm. his narrative or mm -hmm. could he take that pain and turn it against himself or mm -hmm. against others mm -hmm. exactly. um, that's... because that's why, mm -hmm. why why we all need help I mean everyone needs yeah. He needs some mentorship and some guidance in their life, but especially someone who's been mm -hmm. vulnerable and witnessed that type of mm -hmm. trauma. So then you, you helped him get connected with a mentor that could take mm -hmm. a positive story and within the religion and within the mm -hmm. culture while you did work on probably mm -hmm. trauma and, mm -hmm. and yeah, other things yeah, like the, that. Yeah, and the other thing you want to be careful, let me just talk a little bit about two therapists. Um, you want to be careful with opening the can of worms if you don't know how to close it. Right. I want to say trauma is a specialty, and I cannot emphasize that enough. Trauma is not just like treating anxiety, which anxiety can be a specialty too, sure. but right. you know, trauma, um, I have seen what trauma has done to people, 
And that reason why I went back to school because I recognized that I, even though I had a master's degree and I had at that time I had my doctorate, I had I was independently licensed. I realized that I needed more training uh, to understand exactly what happens. You know, because we we see more and more of the neurological aspects of trauma. We know that this is a brain issue. You know, it happens. There's change, chem, uh, chemistry change that happens in the brain. Um, there's you know as you know the limbic system that gets really connected with trauma uh, symptoms. So we really want to be careful with uh, opening them up. You know, someone who does not understand safety, and the safety is the hardest part of the work besides the processing, and it could be the longest part of your work is establishing safety. You know, instead of you helping them, if you don't know what to do, you're going to re-traumatize them, and it's going to really go in the negative for them and for you. So basically, yeah, so we went into a little bit of clinical talk there, mm -hmm. so because counselors will be listening to the show too. So with counselors, you really need to have m major training mm -hmm. in trauma before working with refugees and immigrants, probably because they have the most trauma. But even mm -hmm. if you're working with anybody with trauma, mm -hmm. go, go back and get that training because I have heard of um, a counselor who just has their master's degree and they're just excited to help people with mm -hmm. depression and anxiety, and they know some basic skills, but they don't know what's going on neurobiologically. Exactly. And I think that's very important because when somebody's experienced trauma, whether we call it PTSD or just trauma, whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know more than me, and I, I've studied mm -hmm. a lot of this and gone to mm -hmm. advanced trauma trainings myself and read books about this, but I know you've actually got certifications, and mm -hmm. um, I have the EMDR certification, but you have like full <laughs> traumatologist certification, but the brain has changed and mm -hmm. they are, are not going to react to normal treatment, uh, our mm -hmm. normal tools. They're yeah. not going to work to, uh, they're not going to always respond to client-centered or cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy or motivational interviewing. They're not going to mm -hmm. respond to that. Their brain has changed. How do we help them establish safety mm -hmm. and get their limbic system to calm down mm -hmm. and the fight-flight freeze to, and to be able to cope with that? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the processing, which is a process for the listeners who aren't counselors mm -hmm. of this is one way I describe it, then I'll let mm -hmm. you describe it, which is taking the traumatic memory mm -hmm. and the triggers and all the points connected to it, mm -hmm. processing it in a safe way so that it moves from being what I call out of time, mm -hmm. meaning that it's always, it's always still happening now. What happened in 1992 is happening in 2017 mm -hmm. and moving it to the past. Mm -hmm. So taking it out of our, our primitive part of our brain down by the mm -hmm. brainstem and the mm -hmm. and also the limbic system, the fight, flight, freeze, mm -hmm. and moving it to where we can actually process it in our frontal lobe, where we have logic and mm -hmm. reason, and we're able to um, decide uh, how to think about the memory versus the memory overwhelming us to the point where, for instance, the easy example: mm -hmm. a person who's been to war hears a door mm -hmm. slam, they still think they're at war, they dive under a mm -hmm. table. For the refugee, mm -hmm. it could be anything; it could be mm -hmm. a smell, it could be um, someone you know, who looks your like a threat. Your, yeah, it could be anything. So that was how I described processing. And then the processing helps a person be able to start normalizing and regulating mm -hmm. their emotions mm -hmm. and have a more functional life. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I think that was perfectly. And I think for those who are not therapists, you really think about, let me give you an example that, my, that you can identify with and you don't have to be traumatized. But think about an event or something that uh, where you you feel that you don't know how to handle, that you feel like emotionally or uh, this is too much for me to handle. You know, that's when we call that the window of tolerance, you know, so meaning that 
you probably don't have the skills to handle that anymore. So then that's when you're going to seek help. You know, that's for anybody, regardless mm -hmm. of we traumatized or not. We all have a window of tolerance in, in which we can handle situations, you know, or circumstances. But when it goes above that, you know, then, um, then you feel, oh, I need help. I need to call somebody. I need to talk to someone or I need someone to help me, you know? Yes. So what you were talking about is really what I call the, um, like the flight, um, the, I call it the airplane um, in which you go to the past to tap the memories, you know, yes. and to bring it to the present to be able to function that. But what we, when we talk about safety, we talk about we're going to help the client create a window of tolerance to bring the memory in and within the window of tolerance, process it, right? That's, a, that's what therapists do. They, they contain the environment to, so for work to process it to happen. And so when we don't train the client, we don't teach them the coping mechanisms to, uh, for that window of tolerance, um, then we re traumatize them because right. we have not, we have been the creators of that as a therapist. That's why I see it's so important for us to, to be trained and, and, and understand the safety, uh, establishing safety is going to be key in treatment for trauma. Right. Cause by what you mean by re-traumatizing from what I'm getting is without establishing the safety and knowing the neurobiology mm -hmm. and understanding where you are in the process, you could mm -hmm. just have them tell their story mm -hmm. and and try to process something that they're not ready for yeah, to bring, bring the, up the bad trauma. And, and you bring the emotions with that too, by the way. Right. And, and so then you left them on their own. It's almost like a flashback. Exactly. It's you, almost like they're mm -hmm. re-experiencing their father's mm -hmm. death or something. Yeah, but you as a therapist cast that and then you just left them on their own. Which is not good. Which is really unethical too. Right. And now, now the, you know, the window of tolerance is gone because you didn't create one for them. You didn't help them create one and now they have those symptoms that can re-traumatize the brain. Yes, so. so this is exactly one of those things. As a counselor, we never mm -hmm. want to stop learning. We That's always want to keep yeah. learning. And so if, if you ever come across someone where you don't know what to mm -hmm. do and you start getting frustrated, mm -hmm. that's not your client's fault. That's your issue. So go seek consultation, seek mm -hmm. supervision, and mm -hmm. get advanced trauma trainings. I, mm -hmm. I can't, I, I'm so excited mm -hmm. all the things we're learning with science now mm -hmm. that are actually um, backing up everything we're knowing, mm -hmm. most of what we're knowing in have been known, known for years in the counseling yeah. field and now even more the neurobiology of trauma mm -hmm. and learning about the brain but then mm -hmm. how we connect that to the human experience mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. what I'm we're, we went into a little bit of a science thing here for a moment but mm -hmm. what we're really talking about and for your average person you said you know let's get to know these people welcome them mm -hmm. just be a friend your role is not to be their therapist mm -hmm. your role is just to be a welcoming smile mm -hmm. just like you would smile to your neighbor who you've known and who's been living in your mm -hmm. area for your whole life mm -hmm. um, try to try to welcome them into your community and that's going to make them a valued part of your community and then they're going to mm -hmm. feel valued and then they're going to be able to contribute more mm -hmm. and then leave the, tr the therapy to the professionals. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to connect something because the reason you got into this field and this mm -hmm. particular part of counseling mm -hmm. was because, and I'm hearing, I'm going to use this word and let me know if this mm -hmm. is okay, but almost like a soul connection mm -hmm. to helping these poor human beings mm -hmm. that were born into mm -hmm. poverty that were born mm -hmm. into a war-torn situation, that were born into a situation where their parents left them with their grandparents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to just, you know, clarify a little bit. So a lot of people think that we get into psychology or counseling to deal with our own issues, but I do want to say that um, 
the more I had worked with these kids and these children, I realized my childhood was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I realized that when I didn't get a toy or I didn't get, you know, the candy I wanted at the store or what have you, you know, sure. that I could survive that. You know, it wasn't, there was not, for me it was traumatic, but believe me, when you work with these children and realize what has happened to them, um, you realize your life has been wonderful. And so I didn't have any issues, neither any experiences that happened personally to me where I can say I would ever experience trauma. Um, it was, uh, but when I was working with them, I remember a 12-year-old uh, girl that was talking about her abuse. She suffered sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I remember her because it marked me when I, I, I was seeing her trauma was so painful, but people were there reacting physically, like she had no affect, you know, no emotional. No emotional, uh, she, no, she no, was a flat uh, affect, uh, we call that. Flag, yeah, nothing. Where they look like they're mm -hmm. not having any sadness or exactly. happiness. Exactly, right. and so, so she was telling me, I was, you know, getting pieces of the story, and she was talking about her uh, sexual abuse that she experienced. And she had one tear, just one tear came down, and no affect, one tear. Mm. To me, that that was just telling me how much pain she had inside. But she has learned; she had learned to not show it, you know. Of course, and so it was like, wow, you know, the, I need to be able to help this kid. This, this is not your norm, not normal, but <laughs> this is not your regular type of, you know. I feel sad. I don't know what, you know. I'm anxious. It wasn't your average you know? kid you were talking it, to it, that it was, had a problem. Exactly, it was just somebody who was really in pain, mm. you know. And, but she couldn't show it, and and and, and so I had to. I, I did the intake. I transferred her to my uh, um, colleague at that time. We would do intakes. Uh, there were two of us working in the program, and we would do the intakes, and we would transfer it to each other depending on how we felt. And I just felt she would open uh, up more with a female than me. Not, not I'm not I'm not one of those that say that if you uh, the child was abused by a male. You should not work with that girl. Sure. I'm not one of those. I don't believe in that. But at that time, I felt like this was what she needed because she my friend did Centre. Uh -huh. I didn't do Centre. I was never trained on it, so I yeah. didn't do it. I did other things. So I felt like Centre would help her um, put the things and you know what has happened to her. And just for the uninitiated, yeah. Centre oh, yeah. therapy. Sorry. Oh no, you're fine. This is what this is what we do. Know, we like, just have a normal conversation, <laughs> yeah. and then we explain it. Yeah. So Santre therapy, um, I'm not even uh, trained in that, but I know a little bit about mm -hmm. it. Is is a, a, a way of processing traumatic events mm -hmm. and really almost pretty much also childhood yeah. emotions, different experiences in a way that uses symbolism and mm -hmm. metaphor mm -hmm. that can bring out. Um, important points that mm -hmm. maybe a child can't verbalize because most mm -hmm. children want to play yeah and so santre resembles mm -hmm. playing and yet it's so deep i mean i've seen adults mm -hmm. do santre mm -hmm. and they're like oh my gosh this is the most deep i've ever gone mm -hmm. in therapy because i use these figures and these toys mm -hmm. as metaphors to what was going on in my life and i finally understood it mm -hmm. so is that mm -hmm. what's yeah your... yeah exactly and, and i want to say something i went to a trauma training because i go to trauma trainings and Every other year, I go to Boston, where the gurus of trauma get together. Oh. Their call, um, Bruce Perry, and all of those people. You know, right. uh, Daniel Siegel. Um, oh yeah, I love Daniel. Peter uh, Levine. I saw. I watched Peter Levine last year. I was there when he was there. So I go every other year. But I went to this training, um, and my friend, um, who was a trainer, uh, said that um, all humans, including adults, like to play because you know Anna Freud said that the language of children is play, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, but my friend said that even adults like to play. She said, why do you think we got all these big cars? Why do you think we got all these, <laughs> all these houses? It's like, you know, we all like to play. Play is really a, the language of all human beings. I guess there's some studies in with chimpanzees that are studying about play that, you, I, you know, she's a researcher, so she likes all of that. I, right. I, I really admire people that like to study. I, I, I value academics. Um, I... You know, I'm not one of those. I do read and I do go to trainings, but I'm not so much into the research part, but I am more into connecting with the human beings, which I'm not saying the research is done, but I just like the clinical application. I like to, you know, what, what can I use with my clients? What can I, how can I help my clients be better, you know? So, that so. You, well, you said even at the beginning of the interview, you were called into mm -hmm. helping people. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel the same way that I was called into mm -hmm. this. I didn't totally choose this. I eventually chose it and mm -hmm. went to my, get my master's degree, but I just kept getting pushed into it by mm -hmm. something. And so what I think what we're saying there is we stand on the shoulder of sh shoulders of giants who, mm -hmm. who research. Yeah, and thank yeah. goodness for yeah. all the amazing research that's been coming out in the last 15 years mm -hmm. on the brain and the Norton, oh, yeah. Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology mm -hmm. And the, in the neurobiology of trauma and all the experts, there's so many more we could keep listening. Yeah, yeah. We won't keep name dropping. There's a lot of them. <laughs> but but uh, they're taking science to a new level to show mm -hmm. that counseling, that talking to people and doing our mm -hmm. quote-unquote techniques mm -hmm. and what we do actually changes the brain. Mm -hmm. You can see it in MRI scans. Mm -hmm. um, you can see physical hard outcomes change mm -hmm. because people's cortisol levels go down. Mm -hmm. Their high blood pressure goes down. Mm -hmm. um, they they are able to regulate their emotions, they're able to function. Mm -hmm. We're able to see this in hard outcomes now. Mm -hmm. And where, you know, before people thought counseling might mm -hmm. just be some sort of thing to help people complain and vent. Mm -hmm. It's not that. Mm -hmm. It could be that, I guess, mm -hmm. if you wanted to, but mm -hmm. the point is is that we're learning this research and then they're mm -hmm. writing the books and then these mm -hmm. awesome experts we're talking about are actually bridging the gap and saying, mm -hmm. okay, clinicians, you and you have a doctorate, and I have a master's. Oh. Hey, um, but you know, but you probably know more than I do. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we won't debate that. We'll, we'll just keep going because I, I, I'm not. We'll argue too long. But uh, so, hey, clinicians, look at all this amazing science. Mm -hmm. Learn the brain, and then look how you can then turn this mm -hmm. into what you do mm -hmm. in your counseling hour. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is amazing what we can learn mm -hmm. now. And it's mm -hmm. all backed by research and mm -hmm. it's evidence-based. I mean, that's a whole yeah. other thing. But. And this is what I'm going to say right now. There's also research to show, but I want to say that once your client connects with you and they trust you, and once they feel that they're in a safe environment, which is why we say that contained, you can let them be the painter of their life. You can start helping them paint their life and tell you their story in a very... You know, in where they know that you are caring, that you care for them. You know, whether you are a therapist or not, if you show care towards a human being, you know, that's what's going to help them feel better. You know, I know I can go to you because you care. You really care. You pay. You listen, you know. And we have to understand that when we work with people from diverse cultures, uh, we can never be an expert in their culture. And we need to recognize that and not to try to show them, yeah, I know about your culture, I know about, no, mm -hmm. you read for yourself so you can know and kind of understand where they're coming from, but you really worry and let them be who they are, let them show you, and maybe ask questions, oh, I noticed you wear this, uh, it doesn't mean anything, or to you, right. I always say to you. What does it mean to you? To you, and then right. they all say, oh yeah, my culture, because you can never separate from culture. Right. You know, I read somewhere, and I don't know where, but I read that 
culture is to men what water is to fish yes you know yes. meaning you can never really separate that so it is wrong for anyone to say you're in america now and you need to ah. be in i'm saying that is my, is my opinion by the way okay yes. so, and, and i'm an immigrant too but i have been in the u.s for almost 30 years now where i have acclimated and i probably act more i guess america in a certain aspect sure. and you know but the point is that we have to let people be who they are their language is their identity you can never ask someone um, from a different country a different culture to change their language completely and stop speaking it because that's their identity right in some countries in some cultures that that religion is part of their culture it's not as it's not like in the u.s where you can change oh tomorrow i want to be a presbyterian oh you know i don't like them i'm gonna go with the catholics oh i don't like the catholics right. i'm gonna go with the baptists no in some countries you know their religion is their culture too right you know it's, they're not separate and so we, we have to understand that they are who they are and they were forced to be here in a sense to survive right you know we, we all want to survive as a human being so so we have to understand all of that and just be kind to them and uh, learn from them and if they want to learn more about this country this culture then you teach them that well, well i would say i would say this i think that's the whole authoritarian versus coming alongside somebody mm -hmm. and 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 loving on them and trusting mm -hmm. them because quite frankly and i'm gonna i have a couple quotes here that were mm -hmm. perfect i wanted to read about this but quite frankly like when you're when you're when you come to another country so i i, I went abroad and lived in ireland for a little while and to study and i was in spain for a couple months mm -hmm. and different things like i learned about those countries i learned so much and yet mm -hmm. i was still my american culture was mm -hmm. everywhere and people would oh, yeah. joke and they say wait why do you do that and I'm like, what do you mean why do you do that? That's what everybody does. Oh, wait, no, that's what Americans do. So, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, but I learned so much about Ireland. I learned so much about Spain. I went to other countries, too, but those were where I spent the most time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I of course, so when immigrants come here and refugees come here, they are going to learn about America, everybody. Relax. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. are Everywhere they go, the TV, the radio, uh, they're going to learn. They Most people will learn English depending on their age. Mm -hmm. But let them go at their own pace. So what mm -hmm. you're saying is, don't beat them over the head and say, abandon your culture, abandon your religion, mm -hmm. um, you're here now. No, let them practice, but mm -hmm. understand that they are going to be, mm -hmm. assimilate at their own pace. And especially the children are probably going to assimilate, oh, acclimate yeah. at their own choice. But it's their choice, mm -hmm. not ours, to, mm -hmm. to say that. And so, obviously, if they're going to get a job or something here, they're probably going to have to know English. They're going to have to, yeah. And so that we have to trust that that they're mm -hmm. going to do that at their own pace, mm -hmm. and that w by loving them and inviting them into mm -hmm. our community, mm -hmm. that they're they're going to want to have both cultures. They're mm -hmm. going to want to have our culture, mm -hmm. and they're going to want to also retain their culture because that's their identity. So we, mm -hmm. if if we're loving on them and being honest and open and empathetic towards their plight, mm -hmm. they're going to naturally adjust better. And I know you got more to say, and, I, and then I'll read these quotes. Go ahead. Oh, I, have, oh, oh, well, I thought you seemed no, like well, you had more to say. I, I wanted to talk because um, the, I don't know if you know about the Lost Boys, the boys from... Uh, the Lost Boys? So, yes, so, I yeah, met okay. the Lost Boys. I went to my okay. high school. Okay. Did, yeah. Well, you know, Arizona, Phoenix in particular, was one of the uh, states that, uh, cities that uh, brought them. Yes. To. So um, From Somalia, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Sudan, I think, or... Uh, I don't remember, but they, you know what it might have been, Sudan. Yeah. We had several at my yeah. high school that were told us their stories. Yeah. So, yeah. but if uh, once they became adults and they got a job, you know, some of them and there's actually stories out there on YouTube you can watch. 
where they brought their mom or grandmother, you know, to the U.S. to uh, see them. And when you when they were waiting for that, they were wearing their like their clothing from the you know the cultural clothing, and they were just you know chanting and doing whatever they needed to do. Because they can, even though now they've been in the U.S. for so many years, they're still who, uh, who they are. You know, still, mm -hmm. they are still their boys, you know, that they, they came. I guess their life did not change fully in the sense of my identity now is American. You know, I'm still who I am, you know. And so, like, when I was talking about me, you know, I, I am very, in certain aspects, you know, I'm very U.S. Uh, culture, <laughs> right. you know, right. but there are certain things that I'm still you know, the part of me, like language and other things, you know, they can, sure. I would never stop speaking it because I'm in a different country. When I went to um, Spain, you know, um, I noticed too that they had different words in the language or, right. and they didn't take my plate right away. Like, I hate that about the U.S. <laughs> that you're eating, they like take your plate right away. And, you know, like, like, I don't know, they're saying they don't want you to see that or they want you to tell, they're telling you to leave. But in Spain, they left it there. In France, they left it there. I'm like, yeah, you know, no, no one's bothering me with my plate. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, eating is a big difference <laughs> yeah, in, different. Uh, in, in different countries. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., we eat pretty quickly. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's, a, that's a reputation. We eat a lot, and we eat a lot, and yeah. we eat really quickly. Really quick. But when, yes, and I was confused when I was there for a while because I was, at the when I first arrived, I was impatient. Because mm. I, I was thinking, what did our waiter leave? Mm. Are we are we gonna yeah. serve? And then they were they would bring out the courses very slowly. Yeah. And and, and then eventually I adapted and I liked it. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, and one of my one of my things I'm trying to be more mindful about is not eating too quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not good for your digestion. But exactly. anyway, so I learned, you know, part of the culture in and I was in France too, in France and Spain, where especially like eating slow meals, mm -hmm. eating courses and sort of having a long discussion. Mm -hmm over food and that's something that I've I've actually you know just last night I've I've brought I've sort of adapted that with some of my friends mm -hmm. in the US I've brought part of my travel experience to the US because um, a lot of my friends what we'll do last night my friend cooked food for us and we talked from 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. until 10:30 p.m. Oh, no. That's why I'm a little tired this morning. Oh, and okay. and <laughs> we had food and we yeah. had a little bit of wine and we had uh, some dessert and um, we and we ate slowly mm -hmm. and mindfully and we talked the entire time and we didn't do anything else and so that's something i feel like is attributed to mm -hmm. um part of my mm -hmm. cultural experience and that yeah. yet i'm so still american i'm still mm -hmm. eating american food whatever yeah you yeah, know but, that's and change. so part of it is this we're is we're all human mm -hmm. and so coming back to that we're all human and i think that sometimes we forget that yeah we put these labels on ourselves mm -hmm. um because of course you know we do have obviously I have a u.s passport you know yeah. we, we have these labels we we i i have i have allegiance to this country mm -hmm. but yet we're all human and so we have to remember that when we're talking about refugees and immigrants these are just humans if mm -hmm. they were born here you know they might have had different names and mm -hmm. different parents but they would be the same soul is in that person exactly and so exactly. they've just gone through these hard times it's hard for us to understand it because mm -hmm. um in the u.s mostly we have not been displaced mm -hmm. it, for the last couple hundred years we have not been displaced we have not um, very few attacks on U.S. soil mm -hmm. um, have happened to us, uh, and so we're we're lucky in that way. And I know we and blessed too. I mean, blessed, we yes. have to admit that the U.S. has been blessed. And yes, it's a blessing to live here. Yes, um, you, but you had not, like you said, experienced suffering. 
Right, you know? not to that degree at not all. Not to that degree at all. I mean, to that level, the other the world has suffered, you know? So, right. So people should um, treasure that and, and appreciate that, you know? And because hopefully we'll never have to experience any of that. I'm yes. not really looking forward to experience any of that. No, me you know? But, <laughs> but, but, you know, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, we, we just, I think the empathy in, with this, I finish, uh, but empathy, understanding, like you said, we, you are a human being. You and I are different. You have blue eyes, I have brown eyes, okay? Mine are prettier than yours, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, we, okay. I'll let you we, in that one. We won't fight. Right. Uh, but you know what I mean? It's like, but we are still humans. We still suffer. We still laugh. We still eat. Uh, you know, one day we all gonna die. Both yes. of us, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but we're still connected somehow because our humanity is really what connects us. Yeah, there's similarities and there's differences, and we have to acknowledge that. But we're still humans, and I think that the bottom part is that regardless, if you think oh, they're so different, well, they're not so different. Mm. Uh, you are not so Get different. Get to know them exactly. Mm -hmm. We are really. The same in a in one, you know. So. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I can actually, <laughs> I can actually stop that. So this is the official end of the podcast okay. because that was just beautiful. <laughs> I can't even. That's exactly my sentiments. Mm -hmm. I share that completely. Um, I want to. I, I had a couple quotes about immigration. I wanted to kind of mm -hmm. read because I felt that they were so true. So this was, and then we'll we'll, and then I want to make sure everyone knows if they're in the Phoenix area, they mm -hmm. can see you for private practice counseling if you've got any space. Yeah. What, so how do people contact you? Uh, they could call 602-903-9005. Okay. 602-903-9005. See, now I'm, <laughs> I'm like you. And leave a message and leave a for message. Dr. Yeah. Vargas. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you have a website yet? Or I don't have a website yet, actually. Okay. I, I'm still a small private practice. This is oh, that's like, right. This is yeah. your side. A small private practice, yeah. You've so. got your full-time job, too. I have so. my full-time job. So, yeah. um, remind so you might have to be on a wait list, but you can also refer people. If, oh yeah, if yeah. They I have want. enough friends. If I yeah, I don't take anyone that I cannot help. So yes. I always talk about why are you looking for, and you know because again, as you know, our ethics. We cannot do that. So. That's correct. So you can call Dr. Vargas if you're in the Phoenix area and you want to do some counseling. Um, this is a quote I wanted to kind of leave us with: "The bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respected stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions." whom we shall welcome to a participation of all our rights and privileges. Oh, Do you know who said that? No. George Washington. Wow. The first president. Well, I mean, I, the, he was a president for a reason. And then I have two more that I just want to read because I thought they were great. <laughs> Nearly all Americans have ancestors who brave the oceans. Liberty-loving risk-takers in search of an ideal. The largest voluntary migrations in recorded history. Immigration is not just a link to Americans' past but it is also a link to America's future. Who said that? I have no idea. George W. Bush. Oh, good for him. Yes. And one more. I just, or no, there's two more, sorry. Everywhere, immigrants have enriched and strengthened the fabric of American life. That's John F. Kennedy. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to go two more because I'm just on a roll. I've always argued <laughs> that this country has benefited immensely from the fact that we have drawn people from all over the world. That's Alan Greenspan. Mm-hmm. And then remember, remember always that all of us, you and I especially, are descended from immigrants and revolutionists, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And so I just wanted to like leave that with everybody because there's a lot of political debates which we are not even going to get into. And most of us counselors, we no. do not get into that because we're, we want to help people. Mm -hmm. And regardless of where you came from, mm -hmm. what your political opinions are, mm -hmm. where you're from, what happened to you, whether you grew up in opulence and wealth mm -hmm. or whether you grew up in mm -hmm. 
very difficult trauma, we are here to help you because we believe that that makes the world a better place, person by person. Everybody you affect, rich mm -hmm. or poor, um, you know, prestigious or having no status in our culture or mm -hmm. from a different culture, we want to help spread mm -hmm. uh, the message that we're all people, and 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 then also people can help each other in different ways. You don't That's have right. to be a counselor to help people. It's better so. to build bridges. It's better to help each other than to hate each other. And as a therapist, a code of ethics prohibits us from discriminating due an immigration status. It's noted there. I teach ethics, so I know. Yes, that's correct. And I really don't understand why you want to be a therapist where you're going to be discriminating because people are different than you are. I just don't understand that. Don't I get that. that don't get that. So yeah. I respect that's your choice um, to be like that. But I, again, to me, therapy, counseling is to heal, help heal people to restore themselves and to find fulfilling lives, you know, and be happy as the Constitution of the U.S. says, right? Seek yes. happiness, right? So that's what I had to say is that I respect them too, of course, as their um, belief system, if they want to hate or, or reject people based on the differences. But believe me, at the end, we all end up dying. So Yes, so we need to think about that. That's mm -hmm. some existentialism, which exactly. might be another podcast topic. <laughs> uh, that will be a future podcast topic, okay. existentialism. So, Dr. Vargas, I appreciate you coming you, here. Paul. Or nice. letting me come into your office and interview you, and I'm, I'm excited to... Uh, post this later so okay thank you so much. so much appreciate it and there you have it i hope you enjoyed my interview with dr noe vargas this has been paul kraus licensed professional counselor and you've been listening to the intentional clinician um Dr. Vargas actually does see people in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you're there, you can look up Dr. Noe Vargas and go to his private practice. And also he is a teacher at Grand Canyon University and the assistant dean. I'm not sure how many courses he's teaching right now, but he's a fantastic teacher and very knowledgeable. I am located in Grand Rapids primarily, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you'd like to work with me, if you know someone who's been through trauma or if you've been through trauma yourself, that is one of my specialties. You can give me a call directly at 616-365-5530. That's 616-365-5530. Or go to my website, paulkrauscounseling.com or healthforlifegr.com. There are several other clinicians and two naturopathic doctors working at my office, both males and females, and almost all of them have great experience working with trauma. So we'd love to help you out if you're in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, or if you even want to work remotely and you're in the Michigan area. Our main number is 616-200-4433. That's 616-200-4433. Or find us on the internet by Googling Health for Life Grand Rapids. Thanks so much for supporting my podcast and listening. I am still taking suggestions for future podcasts. I've got some great interviews coming up and a few solo podcasts. I appreciate everyone who's written in uh, to my email and uh, talked to me about the podcast so far. And I'd love to hear from you if you're listening. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I'm still new to this podcasting thing. And I would love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much for listening and take care of you.
Okay, so I'm going to ask you a test question to see how our volume is. Okay, so, favorite vacation spot? Uh, Hawaii. I like Hawaii. I went to Hawaii like a couple years ago. I know, like four years now. It's really beautiful over there. Not to say more. Where'd you stay? <laughs> <laughs> we stayed in Lahaina. I think it's called Lahaina. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... It was just really, really nice. It was just the weather was beautiful. Actually, the weather resembles where I came from in Mexico. Okay. So that was really good because memories kind of came back just because of the weather. Oh, very good, very good. Okay. okay.